You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans of the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrooks.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. After the lights go out on Talk Sport. I'm Steve Harmison. I represented England in 63 tests, 58 one day internationals, and won the Ashes twice with my country. And I'm Leon McKenzie. I've experienced life as both a Premier League footballer and professional boxer. In this series, we're focusing on elite athletes and their transition from professional sport to civilian life. We both enjoyed the highs and lows unique to professional sport, a vocation which can lead to adulation and riches beyond the means of the vast majority of people. However, we also struggled with what followed when our respective careers came to an end, when the roar of the crowd became a fading memory and the adrenaline fueled lifestyle was no more. Tonight on TalkSport, we are joined by a man who represented Manchester United, West Ham, Norwich City and Milton Keynes Duns the Premier League winner, Luke Chadwick. Chadwick, Chadwick, Chadwick scores! Huge pass and Luke Chadwick who continued his run, finished in style. Sheringham, scores, Sochara, it's a good save, but Chadwick's going to score! Edlington's cross, Howard's down and Chadwick's in there! Huckabee, suddenly testing the defence and it's Chadwick! Luke Chadwick on his debut for Norwich City! We'll be joined by Luke in a moment, but first, Leon, what are we expecting from our chat with him? Because it's going to be different. We've had you know, the, the mental health issues, anxiety, depression, but Luke's going to be different. It's going to be different because of the simple fact of, in Luke's case, what is different about this is, is that you know he's had abuse from the way he looks. Um, from an appearance point of view, that's been very discouraging for him. And I don't think he was able to show his true emotions of how it really truly affected him. This particular uh, gentleman uh, went through not only mental health conditions, but also uh, abuse from quite a deep point of view of the way he looks. You know, that's why I'm interested to really hear what he's got to say. Without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce tonight's guest on After the Lights Go Out. It is a pleasure to say a good evening to Luke Chadwick. Hi, guys. Yes, Great Luke. to be here. Pleasure. Everything Cheers, good? Yeah, all good, mate. All good. Yeah, well, I'm going to start with... You retired him in, in 2016, close to two decades in football. What was your emotions when you decided to finish? It's a strange one in terms of emotions because I never realised it was finished. I was still sort of waiting. Maybe another club will phone me up. Maybe another deal will come on the table. So it was a, a long, drawn-out process. Probably would have been easier for me in my mind to have officially retired, which I never actually done. So it was a long process of realising football's over now which was horrible like it was so strange I never thought it would feel how it felt you obviously hear stories when 
people finish playing football, playing sports, and they say how tough and hard it is. But I, I, you're, in my eye, I always thought, that won't be me, I'll be absolutely fine. But mm. when, when it actually came and it, that long process of realising it was over, it was tough. Probably the hardest thing I've ever been through. Luke, this is it. I mean, when I was sort of the back end of my career, I kind of knew that it was coming to an end, right? So there was a point where I was like, I'm dreading this. I don't know when it's going to come, but I'm dreading this when the day comes. Did you ever feel like I'm actually dreading when the day comes? Because you're saying, you know, when it came, you was not really emotional at the time of when it came. Yeah, know, I'd, I'd say in, in terms of dreading it, I, I just never thought it would happen. Like, I thought, right. like, obviously very foolishly for I'm going to just keep playing and playing it's going to go on forever so I never sort of let it enter my mind that it was over and I was dreading it I think when I turned 30 31 32 you sort of know that you're getting to an older age of your career and I used to sort of joke around with my missus and kids saying I'll be quite happy when I stop I'll be like um Jim Royal off the royal family just sit on my chair <laughs> drink beer watch telly yeah, yeah. all day but yeah. As it got closer and closer, and then when it actually happened, you realise it yeah. ain't like that. It's such a void that's that's left from your life. Yeah, Steve. Look, I know how you feel, because I feel as I did that for quite a while. Um, you said you sort of spent a year on your own, bored, not knowing what to do. And I find that's the biggest problem with a lot of professional sportsmen, is not knowing what they're going to do next in did you feel as though you, know, you had a, a pathway and a, a plan in place where you knew what was next, whether it was going to be coaching, whether it was going to be into another profession, or if it was simply, I'm going to, I've earned enough money for the next couple of years, I'm going to enjoy spending time with my kids and let's see where life brings me? Yeah, I think I, I definitely didn't put a plan in place because I was sort of always thinking, oh, I can do that next year, I can do that next year. I went through my coaching qualifications, but as a player, I never really wanted to be a coach it was just something that footballers do when they finish playing so sort of fell into the coaching passed me coaching qualifications ended up going into a coaching role but in terms of a plan in place I think the PFA support people but I think with the PFA who do some really good work it's a case of you approaching them yeah. to ask for the support where potentially I think more can be done throughout your career and sort of knowing that there's got to be something after because when you finish playing football, finish playing cricket, finish playing in any sport, really, you're still a, a really young man with the next chapter of your life ahead of you. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't prepare properly. I think that was one of the most downfalls from my my thinking and my thought process because not only was I I wasn't ready to to stop playing, I felt like I was sort of forced to through injury, and therefore I didn't have a plan in place. I don't know about you, Steve. You know, that it is, I always say to to kids and who I speak to now. Um, to educate them mm. to to maybe always having other resources. I so think, I, I think, didn't. Yeah, have no, it. I think I was quite fortunate. I, yeah. So, yeah, I think I was quite fortunate in a way that I'd built up a, an international sort of career profile that I could pick up little jobs here, little jobs there. But to have a plan in place, no. Um, mm. The player, I've said this many times, and I'll I'll keep banging on about how good this Professional Cricketers Association has been over the course of the last 10 years on getting plans in place, welfare officers, I think there's now one to every two counties. And I don't know it's different in, in football because there's 92 professional clubs, but there are people in place now that you can go to. I think, I think every year you can get up to 1,500 quid as a professional cricketer to go and help yourself, educate yourself, 
be something else, whether you want to be a builder, doctor, plumber, who name it, you can be it. And I think that is something that I'm not sure if it was there in football, but it was definitely, it is definitely there in cricket. But for me as a person, I thought, I thought I was invincible. I thought I'm never going to finish, but it actually hit me quite hard right at the very end of my career that, I've lost the love of playing and the will of playing now. And I got lost. And after a while, you you start to panic. And I, and I find some people get like that, especially in sport. And all of a sudden, you're out of a job and you don't know where to turn. And I think that is something that I don't know about you, Luke, whether it was in football, trying to help and educate people coming out of the game. But I certainly found myself going through that period where the money stopped coming in and I found myself in a position where I've got four children at home. What am I going to do next? Because the bills need to be paid. Yeah, and I think that, that worry is always there, isn't it? Of you coming out of a, a well-played job into nothing, really, in terms of the support that's offered, like you mentioned there, with the Cricket Association, which is fantastic. I think... There's only a certain amount of people that will take that support because, like we mentioned before, you don't want to admit the career's coming to the end. It's sort of admitting it to yourself that you're planning for after your career. Mm. I think the whole attitude and needs to be switched completely that there is a whole life ahead of you after professional sport. I think the main problem I had, I was lucky enough to slip into another job quite quickly where I could sort of pay the bills and get my kids and the missus mm. what they needed to a certain extent, not all that they wanted, that's for sure. Mm. But in terms of... Adaptability. Yeah, that adaptability. I just lost the whole, where do I fit in the world now? Since the age of seven, eight, I've been known as a good footballer and then a professional footballer now, and it's probably more in my head than anyone else's, but what have I got to give the world now? Because I used to be able to play football, but now that's stopped what am I? What is my role in the, on earth? Yeah, what's my purpose? That's the word. Sort of when the reality is that you're not going to get another club and you just feel, I just felt so alone. I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to burden other people with my problems at the time because I felt so low in myself and it was just um, that thought of what am I now? What is my purpose? I haven't really got a purpose. I spent my whole life being obsessed with football it was all around being a footballer and carrying on being a footballer and staying in the game staying in the game and that's gone like we mentioned at the start that lack of preparation which obviously 100% my responsibility but I just didn't want to admit that football was going to finish and when it did it was the first obviously I love my wife and kids dearly but football was my first love it was what I fell in love with as a six seven year old boy and when that's taken away and you're not playing it at a really good level anymore that's when I just felt so alone without that because that's always been the thing that kept me going within my working life Luke in recent times you've opened up publicly about some of the challenges you've faced during your career and in the main these have come from abuse you received from fans but also certain sections of the media with regards to your looks and appearance what was behind your decision to speak out about this um, in terms of speaking out about it it was um I was trying to say something positive in terms of we were in the, the middle of the lockdown period and obviously in that situation, everyone's in their house 24-7 more or less apart from the hours exercise and people's mental health would obviously be fluctuating up and down as it always does, but probably more prevalent than ever in that situation. So the point I was trying to get across was I suffered in silence, as it were, when I was 19, 20 years old in terms of I never spoke about the 
abuse or how the abuse was affecting me at the time. And the, the point I made about when I tweeted out was to, when you are in that situation, you're always better to talk about your problems rather mm. than keeping them bottled up Correct. inside. So I never really expected that tweet. I was quite new to social media to get the attention that it did. So for it did end up being a real positive and a real positive message. And the amount of people that got in contact with me saying that it's helped them in a tiny little way, then that obviously made it all worthwhile because there's no better feeling than helping someone. Anxiety, right, is a big word in my life. Anxiety for you, right? There was a show called They Think It's All Over. How was Friday nights for you in the respect of you knew that show was coming, you know, you got to play the next day. Talk to us about that. Yeah, it was um, It was horrible. I'd watch it every Friday to see if something come on. Just in my mind, like the pit of my stomach felt sick and I was just hoping and praying that they wouldn't mention my name. I just didn't want to be on there. And like, obviously when it when it came on, it was such a horrible feeling, particularly if I'm sat with my family or my girlfriend and it comes on it. Obviously that pure embarrassment come over my body, that pure, purely feeling so bad that these people are talking about me in such a negative way because not because I was um, a good footballer or a bad footballer, but purely because of the way I looked. So it was such a horrible, embarrassing feeling. And at the same time, not wanting to show it on the outside. So just sort of la not laughing along or just turning the telly off. It was, um, it was a horrible, horrible feeling at the time. Mm. Luke, how was the dressing room at the time? So you say Friday nights, I couldn't put myself in that, in that sort of position of what it, what it feels like to get that sort of abuse like that and, and then have to go the next day to a dressing room like Old Trafford's where you're looking at early 2000s. So you're looking at the likes of Keane and Beckham big, big names playing for Manchester United in and around that time. I think Cantona would have been gone, but there's some big names, big characters in that dressing room. Was there a, an arm around the shoulder, a help, or did you feel as though there was you were sort of left on your own and isolated a little bit? It was never really mentioned that much. I think a few times some of the lads used to say, don't listen to all that yeah. rubbish, it, like it's a load of rubbish, which obviously doesn't really help, but it was nice for them to say so. There was then no one ever sort of spoke to me about it, but I, I was in a position where I was a sort of a young kid. I'd just come back on loan from Belgium. I didn't know what it was like being a famous football player and whatnot. So it was, I didn't know how to do it. I don't know if anyone even knew about it. Like if it was just me making it such a, a big, huge deal. So I was such a quiet, shy young lad back then, young boy, that even if anyone would have broached the subject and wanted to talk about it, I would have just cut it off immediately and said, oh, I don't bother me, I, I don't care about it. So, Luke, yeah, back in the early 90s, my, a good friend of mine, Jason Lee, had a similar situation um, with his appearance and he had, like, dreadlocks at the time. He was getting called all sorts of names, pineapple head and all these things that I didn't think would really affect him as such, but they did when I got, got to know him. How do you feel like the show at the time, they think it's all over, dealt with your situation of... of of this kind of abuse, really? Yeah, it's hard for me to say. I don't want to... I sort of mention this quite a lot. I don't want to point the blame or blame anyone for it. Obviously, it made me feel the way I felt. And I think in this day and age, it probably wouldn't happen now. It wouldn't happen on TV. It probably would happen in, on the social media, that sort of thing, etc. But I don't think it would happen on TV. I often thought to myself, should I say something to see if it had stopped? So I don't know how I would have gone about that, but I used to sort of fantasise at home saying what if I 
wrote a letter to the BBC or wrote a letter to they think it's all over, maybe it'd stopped. And in my mind, I thought, because it was such a childish sort of schoolboy thing, I was thinking, why do I feel so bad, so awful about this? So it was, it's hard to say. I don't want to, like, I don't hate the people on that show for what no, they've no, done. That's but not what I'm trying to get to. I think what, what I'm trying to get to is, you know, it's about your, your thoughts, feelings and emotions. And at the end of the day, even when I was speaking to my friend Jason, who went, went through his own sort of struggles with that, and like you say, sometimes it's not always easy to just say, like, you know what, this is really affecting me. Obviously, we're in a, a generation now where things are a little bit more spoken about and it's easier to speak about. But, you know, for you to, you know, for one of the reasons um, bringing you in is to, to get people to understand and give them a different insight into what possibly could go wrong or lead to having mental health conditions, whether that be anxiety, depression, whatever it is. Because those things can lead into, like, deeper avenues and and quite scary things so that's one of the reasons why you know what is so important and we're so grateful for you to be on today and speaking about how that truly affected you because it is your personal you're very humble and you sit there and you're very gracious about you know it was just a tv show and, and great you know we're not trying to sort of go back into that as such but just trying to show your true emotions about about what really affected you because i know for a fact it would have affected me so i think you know to go through that and then go on to still try and play top flight, flight football is is a big deal. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, just the difference between what it is now and what it would be in 20 years ago. I think 20 years ago, I think the world would have been a, a lot harsher. I think social media now is a lot harsher, but I think you get a lot more sympathy um, and understanding and you know, a help and a way towards you know, overcoming that. Let's be fair, it was bullying. Yeah, and I, I completely understand that. And I think in terms of it was such a, a childish thing. Obviously, at school, people would give me a bit of stick, but I was the sort of lad that would give a bit back. There was You could fight back to it to a certain extent, which obviously ain't the, always the best way of going about it. In terms of the TV, the media, etc., I think it was more of a case of, because it was such a, a childish thing in terms of my appearance, the way I looked, that they were taking a pee out of me or whatever, I think it, I thought there was something wrong with me because mm. it made me feel so bad that I didn't think and just pull yourself together Luke like this is it's such a childish thing just get on with it and try and carry on carry on carry yeah. on Nick Hancock and Gary Lineker they both apologised was that a surprise and how did you how did you sort of take that yeah it was it, I was never looking for that to be honest with you obviously it was nice that they apologised but it, it made no difference to me really like mm. I said I never felt that particularly badly. I never disliked them as people. I didn't know them. I'd like to think if I did tell them all them years ago, they would have stopped doing it. I'm pretty sure it was a scripted show where they were reading things out. They weren't trying to make my life more difficult. I didn't understand that my mental health was really in a, a poor position. So that's why I told myself to pull myself together. Obviously, I know now I've been educated more and mm. understand that is 100% the worst thing to do. But probably when I was 18, 19, that was maybe the attitude towards people that were feeling low. It was a case of pull yourself together, which was a, obviously a massive shame because that should never happen. And now we have got a bit more understanding of mental health problems and know that you don't get through them by pulling yourself together. You'll be open, you'll be honest, and you get through it that way. So it's certainly my lack of understanding of mental health and also of myself. I think I spoke about that before because all I was was a a kid that wanted to play football and never learned about my own emotions or anything like that. It was all, everything was always about 
football and becoming a footballer. So when I got into this situation when I was 19, 20 years old, I didn't know anything about myself. All I thought I was was a football player. So it, I had to learn why I'm feeling like this to be able to persevere and to get through it and end up having a career in football, albeit not the top, top level where I started, but to, to carry on in the game and understand that you've got to learn about yourself just as much as you have to learn about football. How did you start learning about yourself then? When you when you say, I had to start learning and educating myself, what was it for you to start giving you, you a bit of time to say, I need to learn about me? I think this um, situation, obviously, I didn't deal with that particularly well because I never said anything about it and just sort of kept persevering. I think when I left Manchester United a couple of years later, whenever it was, I sort of had grown into myself a little bit more. I probably wasn't the the quiet, shy boy that I was when I was at Manchester United. I understood myself a little bit better. I'd sort of grown in resilience from dealing with what had happened with the with the TV and media, etc. And I sort of learned to... You don't have to take yourself too seriously a lot of the time. I'd still get stick off the crowd and that sort of thing, like I'm sure we all have, but you've got the the confidence to sort of have a little go back, not a go, but turn it into a little more of a joke, a little bit more light-hearted, as it were. So I think the journey that I went on, it was tough at the start, but I realised sort of growing in resilience from getting through that and then leaving Manchester United. And then once you've left Man United, it's never the same spotlight on you. So, and I was probably more comfortable with that, not having the spotlight on me as much as it was. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18+, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. After the lights go out, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Luke Chadwick on Talk Sport. Luke, going back to Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson... Roy King, super captain, leader. If you would have gone to Sir Alex Ferguson or Roy King and discussed your personal emotions, how do you think that they would have addressed this particular situation that you was going through, honestly? Honestly, I generally believe this. Roy King and Sir Alex Ferguson are two of the most incredible people I've ever met in my whole life. I've really wanted to ask this question because I, I, I love Roy Keane. I think he's brilliant, just how he's direct approaches and everything he does. And so Alex Ferguson, I really want to ask this question because I want to know how you feel that like they would have 
dealt with Luke Chadwick at, at a time of, of need. Yeah, I'd, I think they would have dealt with it incredibly well if I had the confidence or the, anything about me to go and speak to him. Sir Alex Ferguson signed me for the club when I was 14 years old. I went up for trial from Cambridge, had a week up at Man United. By the time I got home on the train, he'd phoned my mum up to ask her if her permission for me to sign as a 14-year-old boy, which obviously to hear that's incredible. It weren't just me that he'd do that for. He'd do it for every player that he wanted to sign. When I went up, when I was a first-team player at Carrington, I'd be in the um, the canteen and it'd be under 11, under 12 academy boys there. And the manager would come in and he'd know every single one of their names. He'd know every single one of their parents' names, know a little detail about them to make them feel special and part of the club. He used to treat the the dinner ladies and the kit men just as well as he'd treat Roy Keane or Ryan Giggs. He had an incredible way of building relationships with everyone to make you want to run an extra yard for run to work harder than you thought you could ever could do because it was him asking you to do it. If you got praise off the manager, it was, I can't even begin to explain how that felt. It just, the hairs on the back of the neck stand up because it was the best feeling in the world because you'd do anything for him because he wanted you at his football club. Yeah. When those people speak about the, the hairdryer treatment and obviously when he shouts at you, it's scary because he can be a, a scary man. But the worst feeling in the world was letting him down. That was his football club and you were honoured to be part of it. And he had every single member of staff, like not just the players, everyone, pulling in the same direction, which made that club so successful. In terms of... Roy Keane, I come back from Antwerp and had my first sessions with us, with the um, first team, went out and trained. Obviously at Antwerp, the standards weren't quite as high as they were at Man United and I gave the ball away and I got the biggest telling off I've ever had and I was thinking, oh my God, I ain't sure about this. But then in the dressing room after he spoke to me and told me why he'd done it because it's a, that's what it's like here. That's what it's going to be like and you need to deal with that. As well as that, I didn't drive at the time. He'd come and pick me up, take, he'd do anything he could to help the players because he was in charge of the dressing room where Sir Alex was in charge of the team and he was an amazing captain who'd do all he could to help you, which the best captains do. Don't get me wrong, me and a few of the young lads, we used to have little small-sided games and we used to hope and pray we weren't in Keane's team because he knew if you were, <laughs> you had to be on it. And if you lost, he wouldn't speak to you for a week on a training pitch. But he was... They were both two of the, like, I can't, couldn't speak any high, more highly of them because they are amazing people, amazing people. That is, I mean, it's amazing to hear, just seeing just seeing you sit there now smiling and describing those two characters is, is great to see. Luke, did you feel that keeping the, the sort of feelings to yourself, was that building a sort of wall between you and your teammates in that dressing room? No, I wouldn't say that at all. I think... I wouldn't speak to anyone, not let alone my teammate, teammates. Sorry, I wouldn't speak to my my girlfriend. I wouldn't speak to my mum. Wouldn't speak to my dad about it. I'd just keep my friends. No, no one I'd speak to about it at all. So it was completely bottled up. So in terms of my teammates, it was never really an issue. Obviously, I weren't being open and honest about it and speaking to everyone about my feelings. But I wouldn't say it built a barrier at all between me and any of my teammates at the club. What about opposition? Did you get any stick of opposing players who was just in your ear talking about your looks, appearance, this, that and the other? Because I'm not sure I would have had the right temperament. No, I wouldn't say... 
I wouldn't say that at all. To be honest, I didn't play that much at United <laughs> to really get to get that. I'd obviously throughout my career, I might um, have a late tackle and someone would call me a ugly so and so and whatnot. But again, like on a football pitch, it was never, it would never have been an issue for me personally because obviously I can, I can say something back. I think the problem was with the telly. It was you just felt so helpless. There's nothing you could do about it really. So in terms of a bit of stick on a pitch, even inside a stadium, it was never, it's probably wrong, but in my opinion, if like, you pay your money, you can say what you want. I mean, some of the things that are said to all sorts of people are mm. completely out of order, but there was never an issue sort of when I was doing what I was doing, when I was out doing my job, it was probably the other side of it where it affected me really negatively. Mm. But in, in terms of when you did play, you said you didn't play a great deal, Luke, but when you did play that 2000-2001 title winning winning season, uh, you played 18 times, scored twice against Bradford and Leeds. And that was during the time when people were poking fun at you. So, you know, to say you didn't let it affect you and you tried to do your job properly, you can actually turn around and say, well, that's exactly what I've done. I've got a Premier League winner's medal. I scored a couple of goals and important goals in games. And I was enjoying my, my sort of my football. Would that be a, a right way to, to look at it? A yeah. Premier League medal, by the way. That's yeah, just yeah. I've got it on here. Premier League. You can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think in terms of that, football was was all my, always the release. I always loved playing football. I, there was never any thought about what was being said and whatnot. When I was playing football, when I was training and playing, that was what I... I loved doing where it really affected me where I didn't want to go out my flat I didn't want to go out with my girlfriend I just wanted to stay home because I was always so worried about people saying something nasty or shouting to me across the street which in hindsight probably would hardly have happened because that was my in my head I was so anxious I had that real bad anxiety because I was so afraid of someone saying something which if I spoke out about it and spoke about my feelings I probably would have enjoyed that period of my life off the pitch a lot better I think on the pitch I would never have any complaints about what happened see that hurts even to, to listen to you mm. speak that way you know and you're just you know you're openly saying you know what I just wanted to stay in with my missus and not do nothing not really go anywhere just because of the simple reason of maybe someone shouting out something embarrassing you and making you feel in a way my friend that's that's deep it's deeper than you think because you still, you know, you've still got to continue your journey as a footballer, you know. Well, it's not so much a footballer, like the owner's a human being. It is, but I'm talking about from a job description yeah. of that, you know, football industry is not an in easy industry to, no. to go into if you've got personal things going on. And I think to separate that, um, yeah, you know, 100% life and everything else that comes with it. But, you know, at this precise moment in time, he was a footballer that felt that he couldn't go out at all, really, and just wanted to stay home because of the simple reason of being attacked verbally to do with his appearance. Yeah, and again, I think a lot of it was built up in my head because I just expected that to happen. I was in such a whirlwind. I'd sort of moved up to Manchester from a tiny little village in near Cambridge where the most exciting thing happens is a church fete every year to go and to play for Antwerp, then to Man United. And I had no idea how to deal with anything that was going on. I had no education in it. I didn't know, like I mentioned earlier, I'd not really learnt about myself as a person. It was always just about being a football player. So when this happened, like you say, Leon, you just mentioned that sounds really sad, but like looking back it was, but at the time you don't realise it because you're mm. just mm. in it, aren't you? You're just yeah. living it. That's how I wanted to 
live my life because I was so afraid of someone shouting across the street or people laughing at me because of the way I looked. Yeah, injuries. We're going to go on to injuries now because it was very detrimental to my career, very up and down. When injuries came into your career, which they did, how did you deal with the coping mechanisms going through one injury after another? You know, you just want to play football, don't we? You just want to play football. We just want to be out there and enjoy it. When that's taken away from us, I think sometimes it affects us individually different. It definitely affected me where I, it sent me into serious depression, where I just did not actually want to be here anymore. Like, it got that deep. Where was your thought process around injuries in your career? Yeah, I completely understand what you're saying there. Like, I've suffered a few injuries. When I was a kid, I didn't really get injured at all. Then after when I played for United, after that first season, I started suffering with problems with my hips and pelvis, which resulted in having surgery. And it's probably one of the worst, first couple of injuries that I've ever had. But when I come back to playing, I couldn't do what I could do before because the reason I played for Man United for a world-class club because I had an outstanding attribute that I could run incredibly fast and I could run with the ball really fast. And without that, I sort of slipped away and I weren't good enough for United anymore. And I obviously thought that's really unfair because... It's just an injury. I thought I'd just come back the same as before. As time went on, I dealt with injuries a lot better as time went on. When I suffered a serious injury, it was always a case of I'd be a horrible, like a nightmare for a couple of weeks where I'd just feel sorry for myself. But I'd let everyone know I'm going to feel sorry for myself for a couple of weeks and then I'd really get my attitude together and really attack the rehab and do as much as I can and sort of challenge myself to get fit as quick as I possibly could. So... When I look back now, I do believe that the injuries that I had on my journey helped me as a person, helped me progress as a person, because I think there's no other time where you can really, as a player, because you, you're lost in it, isn't it? you're lost mm. in the game a lot of the mm. time. When you're injured, it gave me the opportunity to step back and really reflect on my football, but reflect on me as a person as well, because we get so get so sucked into the game. So when I do look back, I do like to think, when I reflect, that the injuries that I had made me become a better person in the long sure. run. Did you think, Luke, do you think the, the, the in, when you talk about the injuries making you a better person, do you think that was a knock-on effect that some of the, you know, the, you know, the abuse that you got um, off TV programme, off, you know, the appearance sort of stuff, do you think that helped you as well? Because you were so, you felt as though you'd gone into your shell doing that. And then when you got, when it's the most lonely place in the world, when you're as a professional sportsman, when you get injured and you have to, you have to focus so much on yourself, getting yourself back fit. Do you think that time in the early part of your career growing up, do you think that helped you when it comes to the injuries, create a barrier that it was just you against the injury? Yeah, I think it certainly helped in terms of building resilience as a person going through that. Obviously I've said it a few times. I didn't deal with that situation particularly well at the time because I kept everything locked up inside but I think the resilience that I built going through them tough periods did help when going through injuries which is obviously like Leon mentioned can be a real terrible thing to happen because you're stopping doing what you love doing and what you're used to doing every day yeah suicidal thoughts for me and to the point of even actually trying to attempt to go down that line where I didn't want to be here anymore I mean I don't know what it was like for you you know the dark moments that come with the, the injuries and the loneliness and just, you know, we're constantly trying to get back and we keep breaking down. Our biomechanics are, are different. We're not the same player we used to be. We are trying to do the things that we once could and now we can't. Career, you know, I'm getting older and older. 
I can't cope. I mean, I'm not sure if you ever was in that place of don't want to be here anymore, but surely, you know, there was some dark moments that you had to really sort of grip hold of yourself and, and, and fight back. Yeah, definitely. There is a real, real dark times when you're thinking, what's the point? Yeah. Like, this is, I don't want to do this anymore. And if I don't want to do this, I don't want to do anything because this is football. I remember driving home, I'd moved from Norwich because I'd been injured all the time to MK Dons where I was on loan and got injured in training, done my knee. Like, they wanted me to, I knew the knee was sort of, it was a good four or five months out and I was so upset. I just drove home crying in my car on the way home thinking I can't go through this again. It was so horrible for it to happen again. Like, life's not fair, is it, at times? You've just been injured. Why can't someone else be injured that hasn't been injured? So there was some real dark times. But, like, I I sort of was in that routine of I'll get through this week. The next two weeks I'll be a horrible sod to live with. But once I get through that, I'm going to get back. I'm going to be fitter, stronger than ever when I come back. Luke, having retired in 2016, you went into coaching. Was that always your intention when you were when you were playing or was it something you fell into? Yeah, it was never, ever my intention. I certainly fell into that as a player. I sort of went through my career. I was never a particularly vocal lad in the dressing room, just sort of got on my job, didn't really like the, the thought of standing in front of people coaching. So I certainly fell into that as I got older. I went through my coaching qualifications, which I found... Incredibly rewarding, but incredibly tough as well in terms of standing in front of your peers and telling them what to do. But I ended up getting a job at the Cambridge United Academy, which was such a relief, as you mentioned before, when you finished getting a job and not being able to provide for your family at times. So it was such a relief to get a job and was probably threw myself into it 100% and was in it a couple of years and just really weren't really enjoying it, thinking, I don't know if I... This ain't obviously when you stop playing football or sports, you it's going to be tough to find something that is as good as that. But this was nowhere near it, and I thought I was thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. You do a lot of coaching, Leon, didn't you? You do one to one boxing coaching and one to one training and mentoring. And you know, when I came out of the game, I couldn't think of anything worse than coaching, I really couldn't. I'd have to be. Yeah, truthfully honest, I fell into the media stuff, which I quite enjoy because I can rabbit for England, everybody says. But the coaching side of it, I always used to work. I don't know about you, Luke, but I, I worked to the theory that I couldn't get up in the morning, go to work and coach 11 or 16 Steve Armisons. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't coach somebody like me. I, it would just frustrate the life out of me. But so it's something that some people do enjoy. And Leon, you do it as well. I mean, coaching wise, I couldn't. I hated it. So football coaching... When I retired from football, it wasn't the first thing that came to my mind that I wanted to do. Do you know what I mean, Luke? Yeah. I totally understand about the the you know the transition and 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 I've tried it with kids a little bit. I enjoyed that a little bit, but it didn't fulfil me. It didn't grip me to say, right, you're going to now become a coach. I know so many players that have gone into the coaching roles, um, whether it be like your Hayden Mullins, your Kieran Dyers, who you know Darren Byfield, they've all going into that and they really enjoy it they're really happy doing it for me football coaching was not the one for me but what is interesting about my story is is although I didn't go into football coaching straight after football I went into boxing professionally but when I retired from boxing I became a boxing coach so what I'm what I think I try to identify with that is is that I my passion was actually boxing 
because I've ended up going into coaching and like you say Steve I'm, I'm you know I'm co- I've got a Commonwealth champion well former Commonwealth champion just fought for a British title Philip Bowes you know I love I love coaching I love teaching the elements of boxing as opposed to maybe teaching someone how to score a goal that's, yeah, I, that's I understand where I stand that. with it. I completely understand that. And I know the type of person you got, like working with one-on-one, it is an opportunity. It's not just boxing, is it? You're mm. teaching, mentoring these these guys to become the best people they are, just as much as uh, the best box they are. I got to the point in football coaching, where I, I mean, you're probably aware of it now, I've got a horrible voice and I'm sick of the sound of it when I'm shouting all night, <laughs> uh, all these little lads. Putting yourself <laughs> down. Stop putting yourself down. But that was, uh, I just didn't want to, be that guy anymore I just wanted to to do something a bit different like, don't get me wrong there's some fantastic work going on in the academies and I've got the opportunity to work with great coaches and great young players but it just wasn't my passion something that I could see myself doing for the next 20 years or something and Luke you you, you stepped away from you know, the job at, at Cambridge and you joined FFF Football Fun Factory talk to us about that yeah so this is turned into a real passion of mine it's an organisation that we're we're really trying to grow throughout the country and hopefully throughout the world in the future. So it's all around, as the name suggests, making football fun. But it's it's programmes for kids from 2 to 12 years and it's using football as a vehicle to promote positive life skills just as much as football. So we sort of praise teamwork, communication, sportsmanship, probably more than the little lad who scores 10, 15 goals or the one that shows the best skills. So it's a real rewarding job and I think we are doing something that is good for football in terms of it is just around smiling kids their first involvement is loving what they're doing and hopefully something when they're 40 odd years old like me they still want to kick a ball around and play for the local village team and whatever I think it's a fantastic concept I love the name I think it's brilliant and I think it enables you know kids to to really enjoy not just football but just enjoy those moments, you know, that I think sometimes there was times in, in, in my football career, whether it's as, as a kid, you know, as, as the higher you play, the more pressure there is. I just believe that there was times where I didn't enjoy my football. And I think what you're doing is kind of installing confidence and then you're installing like, actually, well, if you don't score a goal today, you've still had a great day sort of thing. You know what I mean? It's like... I just think it's a fantastic idea. I just, I just love it. Yeah, and I think football for young children is just as much as the the social aspect. It is of becoming a better footballer. I mean, it, it is all around meeting new people and leaving. As long as the coaches have done their job well, all the kids leaving with a smile on their face and have just had a great hour and they love their football and they can't wait to come back. Regardless if you're a, an unbelievable player who's going to be the next Lionel Messi or a a little boy or girl who it's the first time they've ever played as long as they enjoyed it we're doing what we need to do and it, but from that look you know, you're looking at before covid i've seen some horrendous stories and i cringe every time i hear these stories of big clubs taking kids away at six seven and eight and telling them they can't play for the school and can't play for their boys clubs and they are getting them up to nine and ten and the rejection when they get to 14 15 the loss of the game and the fff model now covid's come in and budgets are a lot less at these bigger clubs they're not going to be able to take these kids you know because of you know financial strict it makes it more onus on kids enjoying the game of football 
and getting away from the fact that little Johnny's been told by his parents he can't play here because he's going to be the next Lionel Messi. And actually, little Johnny's going to be a better player because when he's seven, eight, nine-year-old, he's actually still going to be playing with his mates and playing with a smile on his face. Yeah, exactly. I completely understand what you're saying. We couldn't be any further from a sort of development programme. We're not telling parents of the children that we're going to improve their football but coming to us they're going to love what they're doing and learn real valuable life skills along the way whereas obviously the professional football clubs they do take kids in my opinion way way too early because I remember my memories of a six seven eight year old playing for Melbourne Tigers in a local village was the best memories of my life really so it is um I think football is professionalized way too early throughout the world I understand why it's done because the clubs are so scared of missing the next player but what is it less than 1% of these little ones are going to become footballers but we're all going to have memories aren't we when yeah. we were 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 years old so what does the future hold for Mr Luke Chabrick to be honest just being happy I've probably got over my football end of my football career which took time about 2 years ago last 2 years I've probably been the, the happiest of my life really just enjoying doing different different things so I'm out of professional football now which is, feels so good to me I like being out of professional football and not in being involved at a professional f- club and I just carry on doing what I'm doing really and just improving as a person every day that's my um, ambition uh, brilliant and yeah, I've got to ask this because a lot of when you I see a lot of sportsmen come out of professional sport that's still need the the buzz and the adrenaline of people talking nice things about them but never fancied reality TV and you talk about dancing or yeah you must be good at one of these things Leon Dan, either the I've strictly my, come dancing I've got my eyes singing, on it Steve don't worry about that I've got the my jungle. eyes on it yeah you go, uh, well, I've always been a massive fan of Big Brother if they give me the call I'll get in though. there oh, <laughs> it's, it's finished <laughs> probably not I would have been out first anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have said anything <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't follow a horror into the Big Brother house surely yeah, no, leave, no leave you can't alone leave that alone but what i want to say is just before we we end this um you know we got something in common didn't you me and you got something yeah in common. I, I don't know can you know share it can say. you share it please luke because i you know I, I do share it a lot but i'd like you to share it we both scored on our debuts for norwich city against Ipswich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come <brilliant>. on <laughs> that's what we're talking about we just alienated half of east anglia <laughs> <laughs> it's all love <laughs> listen luke much much pleasure my friend thanks for coming on tonight and um Honestly, it's fantastic. Absolutely brilliant, Luke. Thanks very much, pal. Cheers, guys. It's been a pleasure. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. 
A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.